Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's coming up to four o'clock and Jen Bartlett with you for Tuesday Home Time and I'll be here this evening until 4pm. Today I'll be speaking with environmental consultant Lee Tan. She'll be speaking about situations in Malaysia and Timor-Leste. Professor Richard Tanter will be speaking, he was speaking at the Independent Peaceful Australia Conference which was held here in September in Melbourne and his contribution to that conference. The Port Phillip Baykeeper Neil Blake will be talking about things happening around the bay and surrounds the result of the governorship elections in Venezuela, activist and author Fred Fuentes. But first, let's hear it for Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Lister, when last week we left big Supremo Malcolm Tunnel and Minister for Fossils, Fossils Josh Fry of Icebergs, confirming our exclusive scoop the previous week that True Blue Aussie was adopting a dirty energy target, the debt. The tiny a bit more for the bosses, all singing, all dancing ventriloquist troupe, manipulating the Malcolm and Josh dummies to nod vigorously at the fossil benefits of the debt unlike Parliament, where most of them just seem to nod off. Well, this week, the Chamber of Profits' James P. on you, son, urged the Socialist Party to support the dirty energy target, commenting that the Socialists should not allow ideology to prevent a bipartisan policy. Because the government decision to abandon a clean energy policy had nothing whatever to do with ideology. Look, the ventriloquist fossils are all nodding vigorously themselves. Nothing whatever, nothing whatever, they chorus, proving they don't let ideology come between corporate profits and the end of the world. The caring business class, Pionu Sun pontificated, is opposed to decisions based on ideology. Because, as our regular listener knows, the caring business class always makes decisions based on what's good for all of us. Because we know what's good for all of us is good for all of us. Pionu Sun displayed the social altruism for which the caring business class is renowned. Its sole raison d'etre. And what excitement. True Blue Aussie was welcomed to the UN of the US of the UN of the world human rights body by other human rights exemplars, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan et al., who congratulated our minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, duly bash up the workers, for our impeccable human rights record on Manus and Nauru and Christmas Island and the sundry onshore concentration camps and our bottomless goodness toward the terrenulous non-people, despite knowing they are non-people who selfishly and fraudulently claim lots of our land, even though we know they were never here. Terrenulous, that's what it means. Why won't they accept that? Julie told the Afghans True Blue Aussie was doing all it could to uphold the human rights of those fleeing our liberation of their country, our gift of liberty, freedom and democracy, but sadly they won't go back. 
She was asked in one interview about criticisms by the black arm band Goody Goody Brigade of Trublawazi's human rights record and why Trublawazi hasn't criticised a number of particular abuses by certain countries. We have a principled and pragmatic approach when it comes to human rights, Julie explained as if she needed to. In almost equal proportions, 1% principle and 99% pragmatism strikes a perfect balance. But the media largely ignored our exciting elevation, which could well reflect its acceptance of the, of the influence our friends Saudi, Afghanistan, Et Al and now True Blue Aussie have on human rights around the world. Then again, the same media largely ignores or 100% ignores such matters if they occur in places that don't matter, occupied by people who don't matter. Take those massive bombs in Somalia, Mogadishu, which murdered at least 300 people, injured who knows how many more, and destroyed countless homes and infrastructure. It earned two paragraphs at the bottom of the world page in the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin. And listener, imagine if those bombs and horrific casualties had occurred in New York or London or Paris or Sydney or Melbourne. At least 20 pages of mass coverage, the innocents, the evil, evil perpetrators, heroes, villains, jihad, terrorism, day after day. Telly, abandoning regular programs for mass non-stop coverage. Well, apart from the ads. Mogadishu, Somalia, 300 dead, two pars down the bottom. But full marks to the whopping sin. At least it gave it two pars. The other print media, not a line. 300 dead Somalis, not worth even mentioning. The SBS news night before led with, with IS being defeated in Iraq, good, liberated, liberty, freedom and democracy Iraq and the Somali tragedy. World news stories up front. Knowing which, I subjected myself masochistically to the Channel 7 news to see where it rated a disaster in Africa. Took an hour to realise it didn't rate. A car crash accidentally through a shop window led the in-depth news. A hoon doing something, violence in the streets, violence punished in the courts. Witnesses who can't believe this sort of thing could happen in this neighbourhood, this street. Footballers being traded as the commodities they are. I did flick back and forth, but unless I missed something, for a whole hour they covered not one story from outside True Blue Aussie and only a couple from outside Victoria and most of those, if they be so-called stories, in Melbourne, the epicentre of world news. Two weeks of commercial telly news as our sole source of information and we'd be brain dead. Although I suspect most of the brain dead would also read the whopping sin just to speed up their symptoms. Not too many belly laughs in that item, listener, but even less in the racism it highlights in our mainstream media. Julie, who said she couldn't trust, and by she, she meant true blue Aussies, all of us couldn't trust a New Zealand socialist government, now says she, and by she, she means true blue Aussies, all of us, can trust the government she, we can't trust. Uh, does that mean we can't trust you, Julie, when you say you can't trust? Trust 3CR to ask that sort of biased, insulting question. I am a politician. Trust me. 
Well, glad she explained that. One report described the new government as socialist-leaning, explaining why Julie couldn't trust what she now can't trust what she trusts. But uh, I reckon we can reassure her she hasn't got too much to worry about. I can't see much of an angle on the lean. Speaking of socialist leaning, four years ago the then socialist government here introduced a bill banning no ticket, no start signs on building sites and pursuing this socialist objective, the Building and Construction Jackboots Commission is threatening action on a number of sites where there are too many evil union flags and evil union notices, propaganda, including, and how's this for having no regard for the law and for the right of good work who want nothing to do with evil unions, including notices announcing pay rises gained by the evil union, which the Jackboots Commission says is illegal. If people want legal responsible information, they always have the Channel 7 News and the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, which agree with us that the community must be informed of just how evil evil unions are not evil, which we could be sure investigations will confirm, the Crook Casino, which some whistleblowers claim is living up to its name, but which it's now being revealed is another evil union plot. Because Jamie Puker and the Crook Casino lot are sadly happy to let go staff, technicians who keep the machines running and replacing them with contracted good workers at reduced wages and conditions. And don't forget, these are the very workers who stitch up the machines to ensure Jamie wins. Well, allegedly, because who would believe for one moment Jamie would manipulate the odds even more in his favour or ignore domestic violence or participate in money laundering or encourage problem gamblers or drugs or anything else underhand. He keeps passing the fit and proper person test, showing how thorough that must be. After all, if some astute putters have the gall to win continually rather than have fun, fun, fun losing, Jamie simply bars them out the door, persona non. The gambling with Jamie Con mission overseeing all this, which declared Jamie purer than driven over the same issue some months ago, has been assigned to investigate. Caesar rendering. Back at the Crook Casino, Jamie is offering huge odds if anyone is reckless enough to back anything more than a slap on the wrist and crook business as usual. He's not even taking bets on being exonerated. That is not to say... Jamie said that the gambling with Jamie Con mission is not completely independent and might I say doing an excellent job. Finally, the Compassion of the Week Award. Not much of a contest here. Yes, obviously, the US of the UN of the US of the world, Big Supremo Donald Trump or the poor, sympathising with the widow of yet another black, kill-defending white, liberty, freedom and democracy across the world. Knowing that being a black, a bad, bad, he, he stood every chance of being killed by the protectors of our liberties or, or by lethal injection, even if he hadn't gone off to defend the greatest little economic order of them all, must be consoling, Donald consoled. 
when the proverbial hit the fan suggesting this may not have been overwhelmingly sympathetic, Donald said the wife was a lovely woman and they had a lovely conversation, and he had not forgotten the dead train killer's name. I was very respectful. I told her how much she must miss. What's his name? Then when the woman confirmed what the witness her elected representative had claimed, how upset she was, how Donald had forgotten her husband's name, which in his defence may not be true. He may never have known her in the first place. Anyway, Donald then repeated the Congresswoman's claim was fake news and the lovely woman widow was an habitual liar, an evil woman. What did you say, Donald? Whatever it was, I didn't say it. <laughs> Wish the week that was could have that excuse. Good afternoon. And if you'd like to hear more of Mr Kevin Healy, 9 o'clock on this station tomorrow morning is the place to be for City Limits. And it's welcome back to Environmental Consultant Lee Tan. And we're going to talk about a, a number of issues, Lee Tan, relating to the environment and the health of the planet. First, though, the long-running saga of the Linus rare earth refinery in coastal eastern Malaysia. It has been completed and in operation, bringing radioactive ore from Western Australia to be processed there. I'd like to read to you first an article that was in the media back in March, and it was the Prime Minister, Najib Razak, said the people of Kwantan were lied to on the Linus rare earth refinery issue before the last general election. The opposition said it was like a nuclear power plant and it would emit dangerous radiation. But now that the Linus refinery has been operating for five years, the opposition is quiet. There's not even a peep from them because the election is over, he said at the opening of a meeting of the Omno. He said, in fact, background radiation levels were higher amongst the people who live in Kwantan than those who live near the Linus plant in Bijang. But overall, the radiation is very low, as determined by the International Atomic Energy Agency. Kwantan voters were incited by fear, but now they can see there is no more Linus issue. Comment? Yes, of course, the Prime Minister, Najib, had endorsed that project. He can't admit that there's scientific facts that prove that the plant is uh, hazardous. So, of course, he has to come up with some politically charged um, statement. And, I mean, we all know how he has been embroiled in this international scale, money laundering, kleptocracy scandal. Even average Malaysian would now not believe what he say in public because um, he's really covering up his own bad track and he's got no consideration, he's got no duty of care at all for the citizens or the environment. And, you know, whatever he say now is really just to protect himself. What's actually happening around that plant now? It is actually very concerning. While its share value has risen by 100%, which is from about around 5 cents now to about 20 cents because the rare earth price for certain elements has gone up again due to the demand from the green economy sector, which is, you know, um, your electric vehicles, your wind turbine and so on and so forth. But unfortunately, despite this kind of positive economic outlook, Linus is proposing 
to turn all of its toxic waste, the three stream of them, including one which is radioactive, into a what they call condi soil, essentially a fertilizer. Basically, we're talking about a company that had the cheek to actually mix toxic waste to then repackage and try and get certification from the Malaysian government, which they probably will eventually get. Then to sell to unsuspecting, you know, members of the public or farmers in a rural area who had no idea what it is all about, probably for a very very cheap price, and spreading their waste hazards and radioactive material all over the country. So that goes into the food supplies. Absolutely, we're not just talking about radioactive materials, which in itself is already harmful. But we're talking about heavy metals. We're talking about chemicals, and we're also talking about chemicals and and also substances like arsenic and、uh, lead, manganese or magnesium, and all sorts of very harmful substances, which in most decent countries. Had to be regulated, had to be disposed of with care. And here in Malaysia, because of a kleptocracy regime, we have a, a company from Australia, quite a rich one, as we can see, proposing to do something that is very dangerous,、um, not only just for the current generation, but for many, many generations to come. Because we're talking about thorium, which has a half life of 14. Billion years. How far advanced is this? They claim the company claimed that they have tested it through various universities in the field, and everything is safe.、Um, they claim that you know the government, the authorities in Malaysia are happy with it, and you know that the crops are coming out looking really good, and they are applying for a certification under the Malaysian domestic certification scheme before they would put it into the market. So they're very very. Fine advance in in so far as this is concerned. So you believe it will go ahead? Well, it has gone quiet. In the last press coverage, there was a mention that the results will be out in August. I have seen try to follow up, and I haven't heard anything. It may be that sometimes this department will try and delay it because they've been questioned. The local member of parliament, Fuzia Saleh. Has you know has raised quite a few questions in Parliament, and in in return he was threatened、uh, by Linus for、uh, defamation. So she say that nothing much has come out of it, and she's not sure what's happening next. But you know, no doubt she will follow up. And where is this waste at the moment? It is、uh, part. Most of it would be stored in the vicinity of the Linus refinery,、uh, in very poorly constructed retention ponds. Yeah, these retention ponds we had. The design examined by、uh, an expert from Germany, and he say that the municipal waste pond in Germany had much better lining than what Linus have, and you know these ponds are used to store radioactive material. So that goes to show the lax standard in Malaysia,、uh, as compared to in Australia. You know the EPA will be. Onliners backed every month, making sure data is collected properly. They might even do their own independent monitoring. None of that is really happening in Malaysia.
And if it does leak, where does it go to? In the ground. Linus is claiming that there won't be any seepage into groundwater because uh, the soil is naturally clayish. I mean, again, you know, I doubt that those soil are clayish because it's in peatland. And peatland are not clay. They, they're organic matters, basically. What about um, exposure for the local people from the air? What's, um, what's coming out of the plant? Sure. A lot of that depends on how effective their filter system is. They did install a reasonably decent filter, but according to our German uh, expert, Gerhard Schmidt, he said that those filters is at least 25 years out of date in European standard. So they're not 100% effective, and he felt that there will be quite significant amount of sulfur dioxide and uh, nitrogen dioxide, both of which are toxic, and there may be some radioactive particles mixed in with that as well. Again, nobody is doing any epidemiological study, not even the community. You know, this is a situation in, in developing countries where there aren't many people who can do that. They don't have the resources to do it. And they are kind of fronted with so many problems and, and issues. It is difficult for them to keep focusing on a, uh, an issue like that. Is there any protection for the workers in the factory? From what I understand, they wear some kind of a uh, counter. I would say the Oak Health and Safety is not as strict as here. And in fact, prior to that, when we were still getting some news out from the Linus plant, there had been many, inc- uh, many incidences of death. It may not be directly related to exposure, but, you know, one of the most outstanding cases was a uh, environmental officer who fell into the pond containing the radioactive waste. If that's happening, it shows how risky it is even just to be checking up on the ponds. How far away is the local town or the local village? Housing estates is only about two kilometers away. The area used to be a peatland, although it's increasingly being developed into a fairly heavy industrial estate. It's about five kilometers from the South China Sea and dotted along the coast, there are actually many fishing villages. And as as listeners may recall, Linus wastewater is actually discharged through canals that flows into a uh, a river that joins the South China Sea. And what's in that? Well, Linus say that they have treated their wastewater, but nobody actually, because they haven't got a pilot plant, which they would need to do in Australia, we really do have no idea what exactly is found in their air uh, discharge or in their water or in their, in their solid waste. All we could tell was from their report, which is a more like an assessment report for approval, and that's not really reliable because they are estimates based on sampling. Uh, they're not based on the actual discharge, uh, which... In Australia, they would have to do a lot more of that kind of reporting and testing before they actually get the license to operate. And for all those reasons that you've just 
talked about. That's why it's in Malaysia and not in Australia. Absolutely. Um, I actually recently read in the Geoscience Australian report for a company to develop a rare earth deposit into production is a very protracted process and it costs a lot of money because they need to evaluate that at stages that's where the pilot plant comes in and that the the base design may have to be adapted and changed uh, which means that you you need a lot of capital to develop a plan that can satisfy regulatory requirements of course they didn't have to do that in Malaysia they basically got the plan out within three years which is a very short time period. And people in Malaysia are still living with the consequences of an earlier rare earth Yes, absolutely. Plan. And that's really interesting because um, a couple of years ago I was with a Japanese professor and we were shown by one of the living contractor who dealt with the waste from the Bukit Mera rare earth plant. And one of the sites he shown us was shockingly detecting very high radiation. It was very high and I was told that exposure period for an average person cannot exceed six six months for that level of radiation there. And of course, you know, nothing is happening. The Japanese professor reported it in an international conference and I hope that he would convey to Mitsubishi, which is the company responsible, to clean that up to reduce waste and, and is, uh, reduce exposure. As you can see, the Malaysian government had not done a thing. They had not even follow up to find out what's happening. They have not do a thorough investigation to check every single potential site that should have been cleaned up. And how long ago was that? That particular plan closed in 1996. So now we're talking about 20 years. They still haven't cleaned that up. And how long was it in operation? It was in operation for about, so it started in the 70s, operation for about 20 years. And that plant is about, is that one-tenth of the size of Linus? Why was it closed down? I think it is partly because of the negative publicity the campaign generated both in Malaysia, in Japan and also internationally, partly because China was producing much cheaper rare earth, which you know hasn't got any bad publicity as yet at that time. So Japan was able to go to China to get rare earth supply instead of doing their own. So there was no epidemiology studies of the people there? Not at all. And uh, I've been working with a local epidemiologist attached to a local university. He said he was trying to apply for a GPS just to do some initial work. He couldn't even get approval from his department. So that's kind of, it's very political in in, uh, Malaysia to do a research like that, which will backfire on the government's uh, lack of responsibility or duty of care, you'd be really pushing to get any funding. So a lot of people could have been affected by that. Yeah, I mean, I we went to some of the villages around there. Incidences of premature death is very high. Of course, we you know we have seen um, birth defects and very very early 
death amongst many people. These are what we call slow violence, and uh, you know what Rosalie Battelle would say,、uh, no immediate danger. And because it takes about ten, twenty, or whatever years for the symptoms to show, people might moved on, but they had been exposed before, and then they develop the symptoms much, much lower, you know, further down the track. It's really difficult, and the, the, the company knew about it, and the government as well, to pinpoint the cause from the source, and therefore they got away with it. We started speaking about Najib. He's been to both UK and USA. <laughs> I would have thought he'd be a bit on the nose. He had no choice, actually. I'm sure he wouldn't like to go to those country, but he is trying to work up to the next general election in Malaysia. And with all the negative publicity he's been getting, although only through social media, he had to try and find ways to disprove some of the. Allegations people's been reading through social media of him being involved in this, you know, five billion dollar cryptocratic scandal. So he went to the USA with the purpose to try and prove that he is not being investigated, or else he would not have been received by the president. And similarly, he went to the UK again, you know, to try and predominantly target、uh, this particular social media by the name of Sarawak Report, which has given a lot of、uh, substantiated evidence of his involvement in the one Malaysian development fund. Scandal and and also to try and discredit this group, you know. Well, if if、um, he's been received by the prime minister, then everything is fine. But、um, I think he got more negative media publicity out of that trip than you know he had hoped for. I mean, apparently he went to the White House and、uh, he's got his own camera crew or something. And Trump was quite furious that. His camera crew film the meeting or something like that, and because of that, there's been rumor going around in social media in Malaysia that when Trump visit Southeast Asia, he's not visiting Malaysia because he didn't want to be a media target for the Najib regime. You're saying that it's mainly a campaign through social media, but surely it's in the other media in the other countries because there have been court cases already, haven't yes. there? Yes. Yes, and in fact, I think the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post—they all have been reporting. But you see, in Malaysia, most of the urban voters are quite savvy. The one who supported the prime minister and his、uh, coalition party are people from remote area or from the rural sector who are less formally educated, who are not as social media savvy. Who tended to be bound to some oil palm scheme or agriculture scheme, funded and subsidised by the government, but unfortunately for them these days, even the revenue generated by their hard work and hard labour, there've been allegation that some of those、um, they're not called cooperation, they're cooperatives, I think. Yeah, they government set up scheme or agriculture scheme are running at. Great deficit as well. So there's been suspicion that some of those funds been taken,、um, stolen also.
Is he also selling off the the golden jewels for the, of the country? He's invited the Chinese to bail him out. The port of Kwantan, 40% is now owned by the Chinese. And that's where the mine is. Sorry, that's... The, the, the refinery. Yes. And then next to the Linus plant, acres of, or, or hectares, I, can't, I don't know how much exactly, huge amount of land's been leased to the Chinese, and they build up such great walls, nobody knew what's happening inside, not even the lawmakers. In, in the state of Pahang, it's all done in secrecy. And my fear is, from my own research, China is pushing up its environmental standard and law enforcement, especially under the current Communist Party, Politburo, under the leadership of Xi Jinping. He's quite strong on environment, and he's already talking about this ecological civilization, whatever that means. I'm actually quite skeptical. I think he's trying to sell green technology. That's all. But anyway, what we're seeing is I suspect the Chinese companies that have been polluting are doing the same as Linus because they knew they could get away with it. And that will be really sad for the people living around there because it's one of the better parts of Malaysia with very nice white sandy beaches. And that was the reason why Club Med, which is this very exclusive French uh, resort, set up its operation only about 25 kilometers away. You know, it will be sad to see this getting destroyed slowly. Is is there also a, a rich fishing area? Yes, absolutely. The whole of the East Coast, including that particular area, had been a very rich fishing ground As a kid, when I was still growing up and living in Malaysia, I would follow my father to go visit kind of distant relatives and friends who are all involved in the fishing industry. And I think that's all changing now. I think there have been some tests done on uh, some of the seafood. And of course, they'll be contaminated. But what the government did, and that's what the fishermen's been telling me when I took journalists in there to interview them. They're saying that there's always been tests done, but they have no idea what those results are. They've never been informed, but they definitely notice at times, particularly after heavy tropical downpour, they would see fish dying the next day. And this is, it's a standard practice for companies, the irresponsible one, to discharge their toxic wastewater when it is raining in tropical country because, you know, it's diluted. The authority wouldn't have the time to go in to sample the water. Not that they do that anyway. <laughs> yeah, and it just, it's just like, you know, this is how things work in a developing country with weak governance. You're tuned to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR and this is Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. And I'm speaking with environmental consultant Lee Tan. You've also been working in East Timor or Timor-Leste in recent times, and I imagine there's plenty of environmental challenges there as well. Oh, yes. Timor is going through a very challenging phase of development. They've gone through the initial setup of the government. They have had revenue from oil and gas from the Timor Gap. Well, they're close to a settlement with Australia over the Timor Gap. 
sea boundary. What I'm seeing, unfortunately, is um, the influence from the World Bank at the time when Timor is rebuilding. Is very significant, and they are adopting a more neoliberal kind of development path. And the oil and gas revenue has been kind of wasted in many, in if you want to say it that way, in very expensive public service expenditure with no real kind of long-term infrastructure development. I mean, there are some, but you know, not fast enough and not good enough. There's some. Level of housing and education, but people in the the rural areas are still not getting any support for their produce. You know, they're still practicing their farming, their fishing, and what have you. Almost like what they had been doing before. Yeah, and and of course, people who've been reading the news、uh, would have learned that they just had an election back in July, and until now. The government's kind of barely being formed because、uh, the minor parties are negotiating with Fratellan、uh, or CNRT, which is the one that's being led by Shanana Gushmal. Fratellan is currently led by、uh, Maria Akatiri, and、uh, interestingly, one of the founders of the environmental group that I've been、uh, associated with, Haburas. The founder's name is Dimitrio. He got the Goldman Environmental Award through recommendation from、uh, Bob Brown here. He's also stood for the last election and got voted in as MP for one of the minor party, PLP. Initially, PLP was going to team up with Fratellan、uh, together with、uh, PD, which is pub,、uh, the Democratic. Party to form a majority government, but at the very last minute, PLP, under the leadership of、uh, one of their former president, Matan Rao, had pulled out because of disagreement over policy issues and and also power issues. You know how much control they have and and so on and so forth. So、uh, politically, Timor is going through a fairly challenging time. Uh, with a minority government, in some way, I'm not seeing that as being negative. Some people who wanted stability and wanted to get on with business would be very annoyed by this process. But I also did not like what was happening in the last term when both Fratellan and CNRT jointly kind of run the government. And what happened is there's no opposition voices at all. They negotiated at the leadership level. Who's got what to deal with, and everyone's happy. But then, you know, the environment fallout from the projects. Nobody dared to challenge the other person. I think for any democracy to work, you need to have strong opposition party. So, in that sense, the current arrangement is not a bad one. In that it may encourage more transparency, it may encourage more kind of competition. If you want to put it that way, it will encourage more scrutiny. Though people who are from the business sector, you know, would not like that because they wanted to move things on quickly,、uh, often at the expense of the environment and community. So I'm hoping that this means that they really have to consider their development agenda better. And that they have to look at projects more carefully, 
before they go ahead with it. What happened to the cement proposal? Um, that's a good question. I suspect it is happening, ticking along very quietly. Again, nobody is scrutinizing it because a lot of energy has been spent in the last year or so, you know, working up to the election. And now the energy is looking at, you know, how do they carve up the power and, how, you know, what sort of negotiation they should enter with each other at Parliament. Can you just just outline your concerns with that project? It is a very big cement project where a huge amount of limestone and clay will be extracted on a daily basis from a, a fairly populated region in Baokal. Baokal is the second largest city in Timor. It's a limestone kind of landscape, and there's very few countries with that kind of lands, landscape. In the eyes of the cement company, which happens to be a Western Australian large development building construction corporation, you know, they have this huge base load of uh, raw materials which they could get for next to nothing. But in, from an ecological point of view, from cultural point of view, that area has got a lot of uh, unique features and characteristics and, of course, the cultural ties. And none of that's kind of being taken into consideration. I mean, yes, they were in the terms of reference for EIA, for social impact assessment, but none of us has seen any of that kind of reports coming out yet. We don't like the way things have been going. And as some listeners may know, cement plant is a very emission-heavy kind of project. And, you know, they send out dust and a lot of environmental pollution if not managed properly. Again, you know, I was involved in the training of environmental officer in, in Timor early last year. And they were the one who first told me about these projects. But when I asked them to look at the law, you know, they are, to look at what they mandated to do, half of them didn't know what they mandated to do. And most of them given up before they even do their job because it's too big, too complicated. They haven't got the skill or training. And three days of workshops not going to give them enough skill apart from getting a big picture. So that's how, you know, a country like Timor struggling to get itself up, having to, you know, when they landed with such a big project, the, the impact is very, very high, and yet they do not have the capability to actually manage it or control it. I mean, it's also very political. It depends on who gave them the okay, and if the top men say it's okay, nobody would challenge that. And that's really sad because of the feudal dynamic that still exists in that kind of society. And the people aren't going to be benefiting much at all? Uh, not at all. I mean, they will risk having their water supply either reduced or completely destroyed. Uh, and then they will risk pollution, air pollution. And then they would have to deal with the influx of foreign workers living amongst them. And again, you know, from a national Statistic point of view, their emission will be increased and also the loss of biological diversity and, 
you know, wilderness area that has not even been surveyed, and now it's, it's going to become like just an ore body for a foreign cement company. It yeah. must be fairly difficult to be an environmentalist in East Timor. I think it's difficult mainly because they also have close relationship with the government through all kind of resistant comradery, is it? I think that's good and bad. Bad in that they cannot be too openly critical. I mean, of course they can, but they don't do that because a lot of... Um, it's got consequences. Yeah, not only that. It's like Timur is a society that value relationship, human relationship a lot. They are very strong family social bonds, which... I think most of us would find difficulty understanding. It's a bit like the Aboriginal community here, you know, with the family people. That person might have done something wrong, but you still don't criticize them because they're part of the family. It's a bit like that in Timor, which in one, you know, if things work well, if everyone's honest, it's good. But when you have corruption happening, they wait for an outsider. To deal with it, I had to be dragged in that sort of situation very often. I get sick of being the police. <laughs> it's not very fun because they felt safe that you know I'm doing it. They didn't have to deal with the consequences, and they think that you know I'm being shouted because I leave that country anyway. I didn't have to deal with that, and whoever did wrong could not pay back in the same way that they could in their own country, but. You can only do that much. <laughs> it's not fun. <laughs> We're coming to the end of 2017, Lee Tan. Your assessment of the environmental impacts of, well, we have to say climate change, don't we? Yeah. It's very sad, actually. I haven't seen any good news uh, on that front. Mr Abbott said it's going well. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I just wish that he would shut up because when he was Prime Minister, I refused to watch the news. <laughs> Every indicator coming out, whether it's about Australia or the world, has been showing how bad things has gone, but I'm not seeing any actions. Okay, some people talk about, you know, so many wind farms, so many solar farms or uh, power farms and this and that coming out here, then everywhere. But I'm really questioning... It is very well to try and hope that technology will fix the problem, but I don't think it will because my research project is telling me that with this green technology, the pollution has to come from somewhere or it has to go somewhere, and often it just gets pushed to developing country. I've just been talking about how hopeless governance and monitoring and law enforcement has been for those countries. And this is exactly what happened. I mean, we're talking about liners, rare earth. No wind power plant, no electric uh, vehicle would be able to operate without one or more of the rare earth elements. And yet we're seeing this company doing the worst kind of waste management uh, and not really looking into their pollution control. And yet they're pitching themselves as being green and, you know, zero harm and what have you. I mean, they're strong on rhetoric, but in practice, they're doing exactly the opposite and they're getting away with it. I think that's what worries me a lot. I mean, if we're talking about a company that has got all this rhetoric getting away with it, and then on the other hand, at the consumer end, everyone's trying to advocate and embrace green technology, we have no hope. 
I think, you know, you cannot palm emission from one country to another. That's only statistically. Kind of it means something when we look, try and look at policy. But in practice, if we keep warming up the earth through unsustainable development, it doesn't matter whether it comes from Australia, Malaysia or Timor or anywhere, we're still going to be stuffed. And unless we really, really change course by looking at the growth-based economic model, we are stuffed. Probably I might be okay and live to the age where I can still see a bit of nice work, but I'm not sure about the next generation and the one after that. They're going to be suffering because of lack of action in my generation and because of the denial amongst some really stupid politicians. I'm not going to even say anything nicer about them. And also the greed and the, I don't know, the greed of uh, corporations and, and the blatant way in which they are allowed to operate. Not very nice to end the year. But I can't find anything nice to say, apart from knowing that, you know, there's still radio stations like 3CR, there's still some really good people out there. That's good to know. That's Lita and environmental activist for many, many years and great supporter of 3CR, as we are of her. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for 49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Next on Tuesday Home Time, we hear from one of the other excellent speakers at the recent IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australia Network Conference, which was held here in Melbourne, in September, and today the speaker is Professor Richard Tanter. Richard is a Senior Research Associate with the Nautilus Institute for Security and Sustainability and teaches subjects in nuclear weapons, Indonesia and Australian foreign policy at the University of Melbourne. He is currently Chair of the Australian Board of the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, that's ICANN, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize this year. And the topic of his talk was, what would an independent Australian foreign policy look like? I want to start by acknowledging that we meet on Aboriginal land. We meet on the land of the Wurundjeri people from the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past and and present. I say that not out of simple politeness, which it obviously must be in this day and age, an acknowledgement of something deeply important, but because I actually think it's a pathway into thinking about some of the issues that we have been talking about today, why it is so difficult for us to think about what an independent Australia might be. For those of you who are not from Melbourne, 
I might suggest you go up Victoria Street, uh, people will show where that is, to the corner of Victoria Street and Franklin Street, just outside RMIT University, and you'll see a very interesting, strange, but I think wonderful uh, sculpture there, which commemorates uh, and brings back into our lives today the fact that the first two people executed, at least executed officially, in Melbourne's history were two Tasmanian Aboriginal men, Tunaminawet and Malboy Hinnat, and they were executed in 1842. It's worth remembering that our starting point, our absolute starting point today, if we're talking about the Australian state, Australia as a society, is that we are the inheritors of what began in 1788, that we are the successor state to that socially. I'm going to come back to that later on, and I think it's really very important. And I was very pleased when David's work I've been following for a number of years, I really like what happens when good anthropologists go feral. It's really great. It really changes what, what you can see. And particularly his rooting his work on the bases of the United States, but starting from that island of shame, Diego Garcia, in the absolutely shameful and vile expulsion by the British of the Chagos Island people. This is extraordinary, and it happened right on our doorstep. It's still a fight which is, uh, as David has said, is really extraordinarily important. I, want to, um, I also want to just say, um, if those of you who've never read it have not read Alison Bronowski's just fabulous book, The Yellow Lady, uh, which came out uh, a long time ago and I very much hope will be, reprint- will be reprinted, please do read it because it's one of the most extraordinary and particularly non-academic, which means it's readable, uh, accounts of our relationship with Asia seen through the eyes of our writers, painters and musicians. And I think it's extraordinarily important. But I also want to say how fantastic to be in the, um, the building, the Maritime uh, Union's building, because the Maritime Union in its uh, earlier incarnation, the Siemens Union, of course, did one of the great things to establish Australian foreign policy in the late 1940s by black banning uh, Dutch ships carrying weapons and munitions and supplies from the harbours of Australia, from Fremantle, from Sydney in particular, to try and quash the Indonesian revolution. That's something which is remembered in Indonesia. That's something which is important uh, in the eyes of other people uh, about uh, our foreign policy. But there hasn't been a great deal uh, following on since then. It's basically about Indonesia. I want to come back to that because it's the country next door to us that matters most. I think in the long run we haven't been doing very well. Very briefly, where are we? Well, you've heard about the Alliance and I think that Mike gave a fabulous uh, presentation uh, about that and I'm not going to add to it except that to underline, I think Alison said the same thing, things have got much, much worse. I think back to the days when I worked with David Martin on the book that became Armed Neutrality for Australia, things were pretty grim then in those days of Ronald Reagan, but now we are bound much, much more tightly and I think Mike has given you an insight into that. One of the consequences are the wars that we are in. I mean, this is just extraordinary. We have been in Afghanistan with an eight-month break since December 2001. That's old enough to vote. That's a long time for a war. It's Australia's longest war. And for what? What has been gained by it? Can anybody, anybody say that Australia has been made safer by that sacrifice of our soldiers, 40 killed, 
250 very seriously wounded that we know about and the psychological consequences, and we have no idea what we've done to Afghanistan and Afghan uh, uh, casualties as a result. And then we look at Iraq, I should say, the third Iraq war that we've got involved in again, and then we've drifted into the Syria war. Now, you know enough about what's happening in North Korea and Trump, Trump land to be very seriously worried, and I won't say very much about that now. Other people, I imagine, will. But there's one thing I want to particularly, following on from what Mike just talked about, have you noticed the way in which the Trumbull government has been sleepwalking into a new Vietnam in the Philippines? We are now spending special forces, oh, just to train people. I'm actually more worried about what their special forces will teach ours, quite frankly, uh, given a, a dictator like Duterte there. Uh, this is really quite extraordinary. It parallels exactly the way we sleepwalked into Vietnam. And this is something that I think we need to pay a great deal of attention to uh, very, very clearly. One of the things that has struck me talking to people, uh, I talked to a fairly wide range of people, some of them in Canberra, some of them elsewhere, about what they think about the idea of an independent foreign policy. And one of the replies, it was a reported reply from a very, very senior public servant in our government, was essentially we already have an independent foreign policy. We have decided that we're going to go to Iraq. We have decided that we're going to go to Syria. We have decided we're going to stay in Afghanistan because it's the right thing to do, not because the Americans pushed us into it. That's either delusional or it's actually saying we actually do volunteer for these things before we're asked, and that is often the case. And I think that's an extraordinarily difficult thing that we need to think about. One of the things that, again, Mike's presentation, and just looking at those simple maps uh, that you see, made clear was that back in 1976 when the word self-reliant crept for the first time into our first white paper and then he told you the history of what happened subsequently. One of the things that's very clear is that people were thinking about what are our national interests? What are Australian national interests? Now there are going to be times when our national interests and those of the United States will coincide. But then by definition there must be times when they don't. And what's clear, and Des Ball and I had this experience when we wrote the big paper recently, or not so recently now, on the origins of our Pine Gap involvement, of the Australian involvement there, and we went back through files which were released into the National Archives and then, funnily enough, they've been reclassified, so they're out of the National Archives, but we were able to trace. There, were a, there was a generation of public servants who did ask those questions about what are Australian national interests. I think that's really important. And I think that uh, Mike mentioned Arthur Tang, who was in many ways the preeminent post-war public servant in external affairs and defence. Um, a very conservative man in many, many ways. But he was the person who said to his minister, Paul Hasluck, the, in 1965, he said, Minister, the one thing you must not do is ask the United States what they are obliged to do under ANZUS because you will not like the answer. It's very clear. We've been told twice, apropos that, in, uh, apropos Indonesia, in 1962 and 1963. The United States were saying quite clearly, we don't care if it's in the Pacific or not. The fact is that Indonesia is more important to our global strategy than you are, so shut up. That was what Tang was saying, making that very, very clear. I think national interests are very important. It's a very conservative thing to think about because, of course, governments always blather on about the national interest. Well, the point being, there are, I think, national interests 
There are strong ones and there are weak ones. Afghanistan might be, at very most, Syria and Iraq, third-order national interests. Primarily, we should be concerned about that map that Mike was showing you there. Where are the edges of that? That's an arguable point. What's important about national interests is that we, we need to take them back. What little democracy we have in this country gives us, in fact, some handholds in debating that. Too often, we leave the field just uncontested. We don't get up there and argue about it. Now, I think national interests are often pretty smelly things. I also think there is a human interest. There are things that matter much more important than simply Australian interests, and I think there is a planetary interest. But we don't have any global democracy, so it's important to function to focus on our national interests. But what I really want to say is that the way we work out what our interests are in part derives from who we think we are. I was listening to a student of mine in a tutorial recently who was talking about how really important Australian defence is because everything important is so far away. In other words, she was saying, well, there's England and there's New York and there's, oh, well, some other places that speak English and have pale skins, but everything in between is not very important. Of course, we're eight kilometres from Papua New Guinea. We're 200 kilometres from Indonesia. We are about 4,000 kilometres from China, and China is now our biggest inflow of source of inflowing of capital, to say nothing more about what China there. Identity, who you think you are, informs the way you look at the world. It informs the geography. The geography, as Mike was saying, was very clear. That generation of uh, analysts who stressed the fact that Australia is very defensible because it's got a big sea gap around it. Other countries would die for that, the country sandwiched in between traditional enemies. It's very, very hard, and that self-reliant doctrine and the white papers that came after it uh, in the 1980s acknowledged nobody's going to invade Australia unless in those days they were the Soviet Union or the United States, which may, the latter case may be redundant, they might already have done it. I think that's still true today. We are, in fact, vulnerable to some lesser kind of uh, military threats, but they're not gigantic ones, and they're very different from that fetishistic word terrorism, which seems to make everybody just quiver and close their eyes and stop thinking at that time. I think thinking about identity, thinking about who we are, is really, really very important. And I think it's fundamental to understand that the war that started internally in this country in 1788 continues today, particularly over the refugee asylum seeker issue. Think about the way in which it's actually framed. We're looking at these people who are barely human. Does anybody in this room really think that if those people on Manus and, uh, uh, and the other parts of the Carceral Archipelago were white, they would still be there? This is utter nonsense. This is very clearly pursuing the logic of elimination, firstly of the indigenous inhabitants of this country, and then, as John Howard put it so vilely and accurately, we will decide who comes to this country and on what terms. There's a direct line there. And until we can really face what that means, uh, I think we're in great trouble. Hugh White, who's an interesting former Deputy Secretary of Defence, really makes a very great contribution to Australian public life about the questions he's asking about Australia's relationship with the United States and particularly with China. 
I don't actually like Hume's answers to the questions very much, but I admire him greatly for asking them. But one of the things he noticed, both in office and subsequently, is we have a particular kind of strategic culture in this country. And one characteristic of that is we're great believers in military force. We really think it's a great idea. We do it all the time. Now, think about it. That goes back before Federation to um, South Africa, the Boer War. It goes to the war in uh, uh, the Boxer Rebellion in China, the, China, the rebellion there. It goes to the First World War, the Second World War. And a lot of our triumphalism about who we think we are, how fabulous we are, how close we are to the people that matter, in other words, our allies during that war, what's interesting is it's been a long time between drinks for military victories. We didn't win in Korea in 1953. We didn't win in Vietnam in all that time. We certainly have not won in Afghanistan. We very clearly made things much worse on that score. So there's something weird about the way we think that military force is such a good idea and the realities of what it achieves. And we've done it again in the Philippines. This idea that Mindanao, the island of Mindanao, the place which has been the centre of armed violent conflict in both directions in the Philippines for more than 200 years. The idea that we are going to make any difference there, that our approach should be, oh, let's teach them how to do a little bit of this stuff. This is really quite unhinged in terms of what do we want to achieve and how do we want to get there. I was going to say rather more about our defensible country because I think it is defensible very clearly for mainly the, the reasons that Mike said, and I'll, um, uh, I'll leave it at that. I want to say that, that defence is something, as an earlier speaker said, we have to get involved with. We make a terrible mistake in not getting involved in attacks on defence departments, getting involved in the way that they think and they plan. It's a very small club of a small group of people in Canberra and then a fairly substantial number of very well-heeled uh, international armaments companies uh, that you see, it, as it was pointed out before, at Canberra Airport. There are things you need to know about. But in terms of public debate, it's not rocket science. The groups like Nick Dean and his colleagues in the Marrickville Peace Group have done terrific work in trying to lay out a public clear rationale for how we should be uh, proceeding on this and I urge you to get involved. As Alison uh, made very clear, I can promise you it's not a uh, recipe for academic success in terms of careers. But what I want to say is there I think there have been two really useful piece, uh, books written on this issue that I think people need to look at and just think about. They're not all perfect but they're a way in. One is by a man called Paul Dibb, another former Deputy Secretary of Defence. Paul and I are not friends. He wrote for a Kim Beasley's request a report into Australia's defence capabilities in 1986, uh, which came up with, which systematised and pushed further many of the things that Mike was talking about that were hinted in those early self-reliance doctrines. But he also made very clear that we need a specifically Australian set of strategic concepts. Ideas that grow out of our geography and, I would argue, out of what we think and who we think we are. Most of the strategic thinking in the world comes from very different parts of the world. He argued quite clearly that there was a strategic cultural cringe. And boy, are we really back in that, those days these days. We need to think about that. He argued that there were three key concepts. The idea of contingency. Things might happen. 
But he argued about credible contingencies. Forget the invasion junk. That's not going to happen. What could happen? What could happen to those gas operations off the northwest shelf? They're nice, juicy targets for someone, not really to defeat Australia or any nonsense like that, but simply to make life hard for us and to hurt a few people and cause us to spend a lot of money on such things. He stressed the idea of warning time. We will always know if any other country is going to be doing anything serious military to us. It has to be visible. That gives you time to work out what you're planning to do. The irony was that the CIA got very concerned about Dibb's report, which promised a limitation on Australia's role. Australia's strategic interests were in those oceans that Mike showed you, going up perhaps to the South China Sea, but they certainly weren't in Vietnam, they certainly weren't in the Middle East. Interestingly, Paul Dibb, who was in fact a great alliance, uh, and still is, uh, believer, was really one of the targets. They wanted to make sure that that idea of limitations on Australia's defence responsibilities did not stay in the white paper that was to come. And indeed, it did not. It was meshed with that alliance nonsense that uh, uh, Mike has talked about very, very clearly. So, I think there are serious defence issues to talk about. Mike gave you a very clear idea of why uh, many of the, well, vast amounts of those almost trillion dollars are being spent now are being spent, putting it mildly, inappropriately, wastefully, counterproductively. Uh, there's a great deal more we can say about that. The second, so I urge you to go back and read a monograph of Paul's that he wrote in 1992. It's on the ANU website. You can find it on the conceptual basis of thinking about Australian defence policy. How do you go about thinking about it? The second person who I think has made the most creative contribution for Australia on these issues was, comes from roughly the same time. Some of you may have known David Martin, um, who was a, a fine uh, novelist and poet, who in 1984, completely off his own bat, published a remarkable book called Armed Neutrality for Australia. Been in the British Army during the war, he'd run guns into Palestine before he decided that was a very bad idea and came to Australia. I was kind of, I think, it's almost 40 years ago, for heaven's sake, uh, I was the bunny who didn't know much about this stuff but ran, got books from the Swinburne Library and ran them up to uh, that wonderful house that he and Regenda had in Beechworth and he kind of would listen to me talking about these things and every so often would shake his head and say, Richard... You are so stupid sometimes. I think the idea that David was exploring there of neutrality for Australia is one that we need to think about. And I'm not sure it's the right answer, but I'm sure it's the right starting point. Clearly, Australia, given that history I've referred to, given that conception of itself, is only going to be comfortable with some kind of uh, defence uh, muscular defence, the capability of defending ourselves from real threats rather than the imagined or the American dictated ones. So he talked about armed neutrality. Neutrality not just between A and B but being saying non-alliance in peace, in peace and in wartime avoiding war, avoiding being a belligerent, avoiding setting yourself up in that way. I think that there's a great deal in there and the resistance to it, I think, comes from this fear that Alison has talked about but which fundamentally comes from the fact that we still think of ourselves in that settler colonial phase. We are transplanted from a better place all the way out here and here is little old us and all those dreadful people who are not like us are going to do something to us. China, 
We're doing a pretty good job selling the place to them at the moment, as far as I can see. Look, I'm being facetious and I shouldn't pursue that too far. I think that Australia has three constitutive international relations, ones that really structure everything important that flows uh, in defence and foreign policy. And all three need to be reinvented. The first, most obviously, as other speakers have made clear, is with the United States. Malcolm Fraser used to use the phrase, we need to disentangle from the alliance. It's certainly a starting point. We might want the alliance to be finished tomorrow afternoon, but it's most unlikely that's going to happen. So how do we start building in, even if it's only in baby steps, the Trumbull government can't even think about that, I suspect, baby steps to exert what we are, that we are independent of the United States. We might go along with you on some issues, but no, we're not going on others. Of course, beyond those baby steps, there are much more serious issues. And I'll just make one comment about Pine Gap, which I think I was speaking to this group uh, earlier and I've talked about it a lot in other places. Pine Gap, I think, is immensely important for Australia. It's immensely important for the United States. Probably not as important for them as people sometimes think. I think it could actually disappear one day in the way that Narunga did if the technology changes. But I think it's very important for us to understand that we are deeply involved in Pine Gap, that we are culpable for the consequences uh, of what it does, that the official doctrine of full knowledge and concurrence with what happens there is utter nonsense. I think some people in government know what it does, but by and large I think ministers work hard to make sure they don't know what goes on there. I think it's really important for us to say there may be parts of what Pine Gap does that serve Australian benefit, uh, Australian defence interests. Maybe. In which case, we need a government that can make clear that these areas of what Pine Gap does are acceptable, but these, to do with nuclear war, which my colleague from ICANN, uh, Margie Beavis, will talk about tomorrow, to do with nuclear war planning and execution, or these which are supplying data for the CIA, special forces and drone assassinations of people in countries with which we're not at war. If we can have some kind of legal regulation over that, if we can have some exit from nuclear holocaust planning, then maybe we could think about a reform of Pine Gap. Secondly, China. I think we need to be very realistic about China. Uh, it's interesting to, go, how, to look at how quickly uh, China has grown into what it has become today. Australia as a state grew and existed at a time when China was for the only time, really, in the three to 4,000 years of Chinese civilizational history, the only time it didn't matter. So we got used to growing up at a time when China was irrelevant. But now it's back in normal time, historical normal time. We find it very hard to think about the idea that we might be living, and I'm quite sure we will, if there are no wars that get in the way, in a Chinese sphere of influence. China will be a great power and great powers are not nice. You need to watch out for them. You need to be clear. That's why I think the armed neutrality idea has something good to help us start to think through this idea. But clearly, the United States is going to be less important. China is going to become very, very important. The most important thing Australia can be doing apropos that at the moment is making sure that we stay out of any possible war uh, between the United States and China because, as the Korean uh, crisis is showing us now, Pine Gap hardwires us into those military operations in the United States. We need an Australian government that can think about the baby steps and then the bigger steps towards uh, disentangling from the alliance.
apropos China. The last thing I just want to say something about Indonesia. Mostly we don't talk about Indonesia uh, in this country. Lots of places we don't talk about Papua New Guinea, obviously. They're very important. But Indonesia, again, as Mike's generation of public servants in the Defence Department showed us, is immensely important for our defence policy. Should there be an unhappy government, imagine that Prabowo Sobianto had won the last election and not Joko Widodo. He's a really, really nasty killer. Who knows what he would have been doing in terms of simply making our life difficult on a whole series of matters. We do need to think about our relationship with Indonesia very carefully, but our settler colonial mentality doesn't take them seriously. So I want to stress that with Indonesia we need to think much more seriously. We need to think strategically about it. We need to think about our culture. It's not just namby-pamby stuff to say that we should be learning the languages and learning the history. If you don't know the history, you don't understand anything about Indonesia today. And for most young people, it's either Bali or terrorism. My own version in long term is... Is it conceivable that both countries could change so that we could, Australia and Indonesia, might become the core of a security community? Security community is the idea, you're not allies, forget about that, but you've worked out that you have no conflicts which will give rise, no disagreements, uh, which are such that will need military resolution, and then you build a whole lot more on top of it. That's what the EU is about. We really need to go through a kind of double decolonisation When we look for the heroes of Australian foreign policy, we do look back to those governments which stood up to um, uh, Britain occasionally. We do like Keating's uh, nationalism about that. We are proud of the way that the Chifley government stood up for the Republic of Indonesia against the Dutch imperialists. We should be proud of that. That's the idea of us weaning ourselves off the imperial uh, imperialist tit. Good idea. But until we think seriously about the the consequences in this country of what has been going on in this country since 1788 and really rethink ourselves in the world, we're going to keep generating the kind of fears that paralyse us and the automatic obeisance to those great and powerful non-friends. Thank you. You've been speaking to, or not speaking to, you've been listening to Professor Richard Tanter who was speaking at the... IPAN conference, Independent Peaceful Australia Network Conference, which was held here, as he said, at the Maritime Union Building in September, just last month. One of the many excellent speakers that were there for that conference. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. I've of my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great and really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op 312 Smith Street Collingwood A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. Continue with our environmental flavour for Tuesday Home Time for today. I'm speaking with Port Phillip Baykeeper Neil Blake. Well, we, you are here as the Baykeeper. There are river keepers, but we'll just begin, Neil, by just saying that they're all part of the one system. Yes, well, I've been uh, having a bit of fun lately, Jan. Uh, 
uh, mentioning to the Werribee Riverkeeper Association. Actually, last night I went to their AGM and uh, was happy to tell them that uh, the Werribee River is just one of the skinny bits of the bay. And uh, but on the same token, uh, the the bay is just one of the fat bits of the river. So uh, that's really the message, I guess, is that we need to um, consider all of the waterways as as one system and uh, realise that they are quite directly linked to each other. And looking after the health of the catchments particularly looks after the bay. So uh, uh, and vice versa. So um, this is the message I'd like to get across to the three quarters of Victorians that live in catchments around the bay that uh, the choices that they make in terms of uh, how they garden, whether they use pesticides or all that sort of stuff, if they drop litter on the street, if they put out the uh, polystyrene packaging that uh, they bought their white goods in and leave it on the street so it can get blown away and driven over, that all impacts on the bay. And how far out of Melbourne is that catchment? Well, it goes quite a long way up up towards Macedon. So when you look at uh, the Maribyrnong River, for example... um, yeah, so it's quite quite an extended area, probably maybe uh, 80 k's, perhaps. So uh, yeah, it's a it's a big area of of country, really, that uh, the drainage systems actually flow down into the bay. And how would you assess the health of those systems? They're not not bad, but uh, uh, there are always going to be problematic areas, so where there are, you know legacy sites with toxic sort of waste and things like that in soil, etc. But what we particularly need to be looking at now, though, is the change that's going to be happening in future years, particularly as urbanisation continues, uh, population grows, there'll be more calls for residential development, more roads, more bridges, all of those sort of things that will actually impact on on waterways in in the local region. Uh, And also um, just more impervious surfaces that uh, cause uh, runoff from those, those areas into, into the local creeks, which it diminishes water quality. And also the fact that we're building on so much of the, the ground these days where before there used to be back gardens, front gardens, yeah, spare exactly. lands, now yeah. it's just concrete and bitumen. That's right. So, uh, you know, there's um, pretty confident predictions you know, that there's going to be a 50% increase in impervious surfaces across Victoria between now and 2050, for example. And that all uh, will have an imp- implications for waterways. Tell me about a mesh that you've, or someone has developed that's named after a fish. Uh, the manta net. Uh, yeah, that's basically a, a net which is designed to capture microplastics in, from waterways. Uh, it's the mesh size of the net is a third of a millimetre, and that's uh, an inch. It is quite small. It's an internationally accepted standard net size for for um, measuring microplastics in waterways, and we've been using one of those uh, since about three years now with the Yarra River Keeper. The net is actually trawled um, beside the, the boat, so the the wake of the boat doesn't influence the uh, turbulence in uh, around the mouth of the net, and uh, we do a constant speed for half an hour each trawl um, heading upstream and uh, there's a sock on the end of it which captures the, the small particles as well as organic waste and other stuff and that, that enables us to, um, on analysing the contents of the sock to sort of measure what sort of um, small plastic particles are in the water column and uh, also um, compare the two rivers so the Maribyrnong has less 
than the Yarra. But uh, the background levels that we have been finding over those three years in monthly trawls uh, indicate there's a constant flow of microplastics coming down into the bay. Less of what you say, microplastic. Oh, what, what is a microplastic? Well, micro, uh, I mean, a standard definition of it is anything that's made of plastic that's less than five millimetres in size. That, that might be a little fragment of polystyrene, for example, or it could be... Uh, uh, a bottle cap or a PET bottle, uh, those common takeaway food beverage things that do break into small pieces if they happen to be driven over by a car or whatever. So, yeah, there's a range of different types or there's so many things that are made of plastic these days. So, but uh, one of the, the key differences between the two rivers is that, that came out statistically is there's a lot more polystyrene coming out of the Yarra than the Maribyrnong. So that's an interesting one, and we, it gives us some cause to say, well, okay, let's see if we can track down exactly where the problem is. Whereabouts in the river are you trawling? Well, we, we're doing uh, pretty well downstream. So from the mouth of the Maribyrnong, uh, upstream for half an hour each time, and uh, in the Yarra we trawl from the Baltic Bridge upstream from there. So we're more or less capturing uh, what the entire catchment is actually uh, producing to that point. Why do you believe there's a lot more in the Yarra catchment than in the Maribyrnong? There's a few, probably a few reasons. One being that the, the Yarra catchment's actually bigger, yeah, in, uh, so and just by population, population. as well. But uh, it's interesting, though, that there may be certain sources of polystyrene. But uh, for example, there's a lot of well, the markets and things like that that might be generating some of that. But uh, it's it's something that needs specific local studies though, to try and track that. And what do you hope to achieve? Well, the key thing um, where we have achieved, which I'm very pleased to say, is now that microplastics are on the radar of government authorities, which they simply weren't before. No one had been paying any attention to it. And uh, I think the other key thing that I hope to achieve is for people who uh, never really thought about litter as being an issue, made, if, if it's presented to them, in the right manner, that uh, they'll, they'll realise that uh, this volumes of microplastics getting into the bay ultimately will get into the food chain. So anybody who's a recreational angler, for example, has got cause for concern if uh, those plastics are being ingested by fish and, and they're eating the fish. Now, there's a, a long story to tell there, and, and it's going to take specific sort of skills and, and the right people to do it. But uh, ultimately, though, we need to get the message out to ordinary people who just don't haven't really thought about litter and, and thinking, oh, a little bit of litter doesn't matter, uh, to realise that it's actually affecting all of us. So the message that I want people to, to understand is that we're all in this together and uh, we can do something about it. Are other comparable countries doing similar research as this? There's a lot of research that's been done in marine environments but uh, not so much in rivers that as far as I'm being aware. In fact, uh, I don't believe that there's been any specific ongoing studies in rivers in Australia even. So um, it's, it's uh, not easy. We, we actually have some students coming out from uh, Worcester Polytechnic in Massachusetts. They'll be coming to the Echo Centre uh, actually on Monday for seven weeks to work with us to do desktop research on what is going on internationally with the issue about plastics in waterways and so I'm hopeful by the end of that we'll have a really good handle on 
if anything is happening and, and whether or not it's working or and uh, what where it's leading to. How did that come about? How did that the students? Mm. They we've already had one group that actually um, were with us earlier in the year. They're an interesting, pretty progressive uh, educational institute. In fact, it's quite ex- extraordinary that the students, the faculty that they're coming from, is, is from the engineering department. So the fact that they're wanting engineering students to to work with not-for-profit environment organisations is quite uh, uh, far-sighted, I'd say. They're they're looking to the future and uh, heading in the right direction. And who funds this? Institute funds it. So we have to be simply a host organisation that gives them a brief of uh, the sort of areas we want them to research. And uh, they've got some things that they need to achieve in the time that they're out here. And uh, it's a really good, positive um, partnership. And what's on your agenda for them? Well, uh, in this particular case, uh, the last group, we we worked on uh, refining our litter audit method for beaches. And the next phase, I'm wanting to... uh, We've we've already got a a method designed for streets, which is where the stuff starts with, or from in the first place. And uh, so you you mentioned, uh, are anyone else um, trawling in rivers for... I don't believe there is, and I'm pretty sure that there's not much, uh, if any, real um, focused work on microplastics in streets. So this is this is where we really need to get to because that's the source of the problem. Uh, so we'll be working with the students to uh, develop a training video on how to do audits, so that, that then they can take we can take that to schools or to scouts groups. I'm hoping the scouts will get involved to. Uh, uh, get a badge for for doing a series of audits in a particular street area. So then we can start to map where the main uh, sources are of, of these um, pollutants. You go around to schools a fair bit and speak to young people you know, around the beaches. Do you find that they're interested? Quite a few of them are, yeah, that's right. Um, and it, it's it's uh, I guess um, it takes time and, and uh, like a... It's not nature and nurture, as you think about with kids, you know. And there needs to be an environment around them where it's just going to actually possibly influence their their thinking and and the way they approach things. I was amazed recently when I did a Captain Trash appearance at an early learning centre in, I think it was Armadale, somewhere like that, and there was a four-year-old kid there who just knew everything about recycling and what what you could put in which bin and all that sort of stuff. I was amazed. That uh, the, the knowledge that young people have now is extraordinary. And of course, when you're in the schools, it's important that the teachers are um, doing that sort of thing too. Oh, absolutely. And uh, you know, I, I visited a, a um, secondary college recently, and the amount of trash that was around on the ground was just uh, extraordinary. You know, I hadn't seen anything like that anywhere else. And you can only assume then that that's, that's normal in that situation and that's sort of generated partly by the focus of um, where, the, where the teachers are at too. You know, there'll always be a few maybe who'd like things to be different, but it's very hard to shift norms when, when it's, everyone's doing it. Well, talking about shifting norms is the, the debate at the moment about plastic bags once again mm. and here in Victoria, and I know you haven't seen it yet, but there is a mural... On a, ch- on a wall in Fairfield, on a, 
car park we chose a, a platypus swimming in the river oh I couldn't see the platypus there it was just all plastic bags <laughs> it's quite a big platypus now yeah, and, okay. and all these plastic bags floating around and the message is well you know what the message is what, what plastic bags do to, cat, to um, platypuses but I was in a shop in Fairfield the other day and the first thing the young woman serving offered me a plastic bag yeah. and that message is supposed to be for the shopkeepers as well as the yeah. Customers. Well, it's customer service. That's what they, they think they're doing you a favour. And a small item, you know, you must have a plastic bag. Yeah. Well, that's right. Even if there's only one item, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So I don't know. It's it's strange. I think people just uh, aren't connected to nature, and and there's, that's part of the fundamental problem is that people don't see themselves as part of nature rather than uh, something that sits on top of it. And uh, so until we break that divide down, we'll, uh, we're always going to have those kind of problems, I guess, and we will need sort of um, rigid sort of behavioural um, things that say you can't do that. And it's so. not just plastic bags, it's other plastic things that we, we expect or we're given that we don't need that get thrown out, yeah. end up in the wherever. Well, that single-use stuff is really... Uh, avoidance is something that needs to be um, brought on, put on the agenda and I mean I guess avoiding uh, use of single use plastic bags was raised many years ago when we've always had those reusable shopping bags but people have still just opted to to um, use the, the uh, single use ones primarily because everyone else was doing it. And also the fact that some of them say well they're, they're biodegradable, they're okay, well they're not are they? No they're not. No. Can you explain that? Well, biodegradable in, in which circumstances and over, over what period of time is the question, you know, so they don't just suddenly disappear. <laughs> and so if they are in waterways, uh, yeah, so any of those sort of things that say, oh, that's okay, it's not a problem, that's only excusing people for being careless and, and not really worrying about how they dispose of the, what they're using. But it, just avoiding and not using the stuff in the first place, uh, it's, it just makes sense because um, it's, there's resources that goes into making those things and to have to simply put them into landfill at, or try to recycle them. And the costs involved in, re in doing that still don't uh, add up to an effective, sustainable way forward. Finally, Neil, when you leave here, you're going to the Melbourne Zoo. Not my favourite place, but why is the baykeeper or the a person from the eco centre in St Kilda going to the zoo? Well, there's a uh, teachers um, PD the professional development session that the zoo are running today. The zoo are actually, um, you know, I understand people have got concerns about them, but they are shaping themselves as a conservation organisation, and uh, one of their major campaigns at the moment is the. Bubbles, not balloons. So they're encouraging people at kids' parties to blow bubbles rather than release balloons into the air, which is fantastic. And more power to them to get that message out there. So uh, I'll be talking with teachers today. I'm grateful that the zoos arrange this event, and there'll be 46 odd teachers that are going to be attending from around Melbourne, uh, learning about what's going on in in the education environment for. Uh, uh, particularly reducing plastics. You got your tr Captain Trash hat on? No, Captain Trash is uh, he's standing by the bay today. Yeah, so he's, that's, he's my identical twin brother too, by the way. He's actually a bit uh, more handsome than me. And that was Neil Blake, the 
Baykeeper, Port Phillip Baykeeper, and that was recorded on Friday morning early, but I did find Captain Trash. Hi there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St. Kilder. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, ah, ah, ah? That stands for reuse, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3C. The election in Venezuela for governorships in regional elections were held last Sunday week and, as expected, the opposition has cried foul, decrying illegalities. I'm speaking with author and journalist Fred Fuentes. Fred, how many governorships are there and how many were won by the party of Nicolas Maduro? Yes, so there are 23 governorships in Venezuela. Coming into these elections, the, the governing party, the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, controlled 20 of those 23. And three uh, opposition governors uh, controlled the, the remaining three states. And they had been elected uh, in the previous gubernatorial elections, which were held in 2012. Uh, this time around, there's been a slight change, but we still see a quite a large majority for the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, who now have 18 governorships as opposed to 20, with the opposition now up to five uh, governorships from their previous three. I would just add, though, that the three that the opposition previously had, they lost those three. So to explain myself, the five they won in these elections were five completely new ones. However, in the three states where they had previously governed, they lost power in in those states. The five that they won, are they in a particular area of Venezuela? Yes, well, one, one particularly notable aspect of, of where they've won is that three of those five states are, are essentially on the border region with Colombia. So you have Zulia and Tachira, uh, which are probably the two main border states uh, with Colombia, also Pure uh, borders there, but the PSUV won that state. And then slightly inland from Zulia and Tachira, uh, you have Merida. Uh, which was also won by the opposition. So they've, they've consolidated a, a, a quite a, a, a sort of a, a block there on the western side of the country. Apart from that, the other two states they won, one is a very small island state of Nuevo Esparta, which is just, just off the coast in the Caribbean, uh, and is mainly a, a site for tourism. They've won, won that state. Uh, and they also won uh, Answatigi, uh, which is also a relatively important state, particularly in terms of oil production, and its access to, to the Caribbean. They're the five states that, that, that the opposition won in these, these elections, which, as I said, were, were, none of them were previously in opposition hands. What about the three that, that were in opposition hands? Where are they, and, and, and who's got them now? Those three states uh, have now been uh, won by PSUV candidates, by governing party candidates. So, so there's have... virtually only two parties, is there the, the, the governing party and the opposition? Well, the governing party, the PSUV, it generally runs in what it calls the Great Patriotic Poll, uh, which is an alliance of parties. However, in, in this particular election campaign, if, if I recall correctly, all of the candidates, uh, even though they were supported by a broader coalition of parties, came specifically from the United Socialist Party of Venezuela. When it comes to the opposition, it's a slightly different scenario uh, because on the one hand, yes, you do have what is called the, the MUD, the uh, Democratic Unity Roundtable, uh, which is the main opposition sort of alliance. But as, as the name implies, it's a roundtable, it's an alliance. It involves 
quite a variety of parties in there. And so when we break down the five states that were won by the opposition uh, Mood Alliance, we see that four of those belong to Democratic Action uh, and the fifth one uh, belongs to Justice First. So what you have is essentially two large coalitions that sort of tend to dominate politics. There are also third-party candidates, you know, much smaller parties that did also contest, but in, in, none, of, in none of the elections did, 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 they, did any of those sort of other candidates really sort of, you know, get to a position of being able to challenge the, the two main uh, alliances, which, as I said, is the, the United Socialist Party of Venezuela with its allied forces, and, and that includes things like the Communist Party and other sort of smaller community groups and social movements and then the, the main opposition alliance, uh, which I, I would add one final point, which went semi-divided into these elections because a section of that opposition alliance refused to participate in the elections and instead calling its supporters to boycott. Um, they were a minority within that alliance, but they, they also had a, a division then. So some of the parties that are part of this broader opposition coalition that did not participate in these elections. Does that explain why those three governorships were lost? No, I, I think there were other factors that were at play. No doubt that that didn't help the opposition's case. But when, it, when you look at the actual voter turnout, which was quite high, it was about 61% turnout for regional elections, the second highest ever for regional elections. I think the highest was 2008 and was probably about 64 65%. You had 11 million of a voting populace of 18 million who participated, and in, and in all of the states, very few of them were, were the results of very narrow 1% or 2%. There, there was generally a, a reasonable margin between the candidates, with, with, with the small exception of, of the state of Bolivar, which was very tight uh, and you know, took a few extra days of counting to be able to ratify the result there. But most of the other ones probably didn't have that big of an impact that you could say, oh, if, if all of the opposition voters had a turn up, they would have necessarily have swung, uh, you know, a larger, a large amount of seats. But, but it obviously had an impact because, because amongst their own sort of support base, it, there was uncertainty about, you know, what, you know, should we participate, should, should we not participate? My sense is that it would appear that the, the vast majority of opposition uh, voters, those who at least felt that the, the, the MOOC represents them, you know, did turn out to vote. Uh, probably those that abstained didn't abstain necessarily because of these uh, smaller parties calling for a boycott, but just because they didn't feel that any of the candidates really reflected their sort of views. For many people who might have been watching what's been happening in Venezuela over the last six months, maybe a year, they get the impression that the vast majority of people are against the government. These governorship results just dismiss that completely, don't they? They definitely show that the reality of Venezuela is a much more complicated scenario than the one that the mainstream media tries to present to us, uh, which is essentially a government with, with almost nil popular support. The, the reality is that the, the PSUV and its, its alliance was essentially able to mobilise about 5.5, 5.7 million people to the polling booths for these gubernatorial elections. And that has been a figure that's been a, a, akin to previous electoral totals. It's certainly not their highest. Uh, at, at peaks, they've been able to get to, to 7 million uh, votes. Uh, but this is a very solid electoral base that the government, that the PSUV, has been able to build up over a long period of time. And it, it, it's very much a, a dedicated voter base uh, which which is um, been built up essentially through through two manners. One is through the very important social policies, social gains that have been won by largely the, the poorest sections of Venezuela, and who realise that many of these gains 
uh, would, would be in, tremendously under threat if the opposition was to return to power, uh, together with uh, an important process of popular organisation, of community organisation that's been occurring over this sort of essentially almost two decades now of the PSUV and its predecessors being in power. So those two factors are the sort of social gains together with the, the raised political organisation, political consciousness of an important section of society means that Chavismo does have a, an important level of support. Then we can debate, is it a majority? Is, is, it, a, is it a small minority? Is it the biggest force? And But yet the opposition cannot cohere enough of its supporters to, to win elections. These are other questions. But to ignore the fact that Chavismo as a political force continues to have an important weight of society just, just shows how much of the mainstream media just do not want to pay any attention to reality. And so we saw that once the results came out, their initial reaction was, uh, oh, this, this must be fraud, not because there's any evidence of fraud, but because we don't believe it to be like this uh, in, in Venezuela, even though many of them are reporting from outside the country and have very little knowledge of, of what's been happening in Venezuela for the last two decades. And what are people putting forward as saying to prove that there is fraud? See, here's, here's three important points. Firstly, already a large number of the opposition candidates themselves have acknowledged that they lost the elections fair and square, that they did not get more votes than the government. Secondly, Venezuela's electoral system is one of, one of the most watertight electoral systems in the world uh, in the terms of the amount of different auditing mechanisms that go in place almost make it impossible to carry out fraud and I would argue makes it impossible to carry out fraud in a situation where opposition parties participate because they have access from all through the entire electoral process to being witnesses as part of this auditing process. So you have an electronic vote where the, 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 the person goes to the machine, they cast an electronic vote, that then gets printed out, they can check the printout to make sure that what they've voted uh, collaborates with the printout, that printout then goes into a box and they can collaborate between uh, the, the number of votes tallied in the electronic machine versus the printout machines. And as I said, in every electoral booth across the country there are opposition witnesses are present there for, for out of this, this entire process. So he, he, even those that still continue to insist that some kind of fraud occurred are forced to admit that when they talk about fraud, they don't mean in terms of votes because the, the votes that were cast were the votes that were counted and the results that were given were the results that came about because of the votes that were cast. So instead, they've had to come and pick out other things, like, for instance, some voting booths in some opposition areas were moved from where they generally had. Now, yes, this occurred, but what are we talking about? We are talking about roughly about 1% of all of the polling booths uh, across the country, and they were specifically the ones that during the recent National Constituent Assembly elections were targeted by the opposition, were, were shut down by the opposition, making it basically unsafe for people to be able to go to vote. So several months before the elections were held, the Electoral Commission said, look, because of inability to be able to secure the safety of voters in these very small amount of voting booths, we are going to have to move them to, to areas where we can provide security. We're also going to provide transportation for the voters to be able to go to the new voting centre. And in the end of the day, what we saw, if we look at the votes tallied in these voting booths that have been moved, the, the participation in those booths roughly parallel what happened in all of the other booths. So there's no evidence whatsoever to be able to uh, really sort of put on a claim that there, there has been fraud of any level, whether on a small scale or on a large scale. But as I said, most of it is driven by simply the fact that the, the media already believed they knew what the result was going to be. Uh, and, and again, just once again show just 
how, how far removed they are from understanding what has been occurring in Venezuela for the last two decades. Talk about the powers the governors have now that these elections are over. The governors obviously have a, you know, a, a certain amount of power uh, in, in terms of what they're able to do in those governorships. Now, there are two, two ways to look at this. Firstly, the, the Venezuelan state is generally, is, is largely quite a centralised state. So there, there are certain limitations to what, what governors are able to do. But having said that, most governorships, for instance, have their own police forces. You know, most governorships carry out their own, you know, have their own taxes. You know, there's the kind of things that a lot of the state parliaments, you know, here in Australia uh, would have. There's, there's not a huge difference in that regard. The biggest difference, though, is that what we have is, is not a situation like Australia where you have the two major parties that largely alternating government and, and generally, you know, accept the, the rules of the game. What you have in Venezuela is a highly polarised situation where any small avenue of power is used, you know, particularly by the opposition to try to overthrow uh, the national government. So the, the, the national government now has a, a very serious issue that we'll have to see how it's able to deal with which is the fact that the west of the country, the region bordering with Colombia, which has been a hot spot for all sorts of problems in the country, whether that be paramilitarism coming into the country, or whether that be contraband of goods, of uh, regulated price goods leaving the country to be sold in the black market in Colombia, uh, all, all of these sort of issues now become uh, more difficult for the government because those governorships in that area are now controlled by the opposition and no doubt will use that influence and power in that area to exacerbate the problems, to make it more difficult for the government. So this, this will be, I think, a, a real, real challenge to see how, how the government, uh, and also a challenge for how the opposition manages its power in that region to see what, what happens uh, in, in the near future. Who's running these places on the border with Colombia? I thought that once the former government of Colombia had gone and a new leader, that they weren't quite as antagonistic to Venezuela as what they had as what they had been? There was certainly a period of uh, rapprochement or at least of neutral respect of, of sovereignty uh, when Juan Manuel Santos was, was first selected. Now, Juan Manuel Santos was the defence minister of the previous government, of, of the Alvaro Uribe government. So they you know, largely come from the same political trajectory, which is largely a you know, right-wing politics in, in Colombia. Although, you know, Santos is also very well known internationally for his, the role that he has played in trying to bring about the peace accords with the, uh, the guerrilla forces, uh, with the armed insurgency uh, in Colombia. Venezuela played a role in all of that peace accords. This sort of helped to keep at least the situation between the two countries of one of mutual respect. Having said that, in, in, in more recent times, Juan Manuel Santos has been one of the most outspoken critics of the Maduro government and you know, very much chimed in with the discussion or the discourse coming from Washington of accusing the Maduro government of installing a, a dictatorship. And certainly the Colombian government was one of the first to basically... You know, essentially say he didn't recognise as legitimate the results of these recent, recent gubernatorial elections. So that, that, the, the situation between the two governments has been tense now for a while. When you add to that, as I said, the big problem in that area of paramilitarism, of contraband, a potential site of, of armed conflict uh, you know, between two countries, this is why I say that there's going to be a real challenge to see what, what happens in the next period uh, in, in that border region in, in, in Venezuela. How much does Colombia rely on the United States for its um, 
well, its well-being, I suppose. Colombia's always, you know, for a long time now, had an extremely close relationship uh, with, with the United States. It's, it's uh, in, within the top four of sources or, of destination of U.S. funds, you know, military funds for and, and support for, for other countries. Certainly, there's a very close relationship being built up over a long period of time and, and very much you know, the US has seen Colombia as, as its sort of beachhead both particularly obviously in, into South America in, in, you know, on the northern part of the Amazon region now, Colombia is very strategic because of its location connecting Central and South America they're the only country in South America that has access to both the Pacific and the Atlantic Oceans so th- th- there's, a, there's a large history of, of the relationship of, of closeness between the US and and Colombia, and that continues to to this day. And is the US also using Brazil against Venezuela now? Well, Brazil has certainly been outspoken as well against the Venezuelan government, particularly, you know, which is quite ironic, ever since they essentially carried out what they dubbed the constitutional coup to get rid of the elected president of of Brazil and and impose, you know, for Parliament to impose its own president. However, they've been limited to a certain extent in how far they've really been able to involve themselves in in, in a lot of stuff, just just because of the huge problems that the the government in Brazil faces. You know, know, while the mainstream media will talk about the the unpopularity of of Maduro, uh, who even in the the worst-case scenario polls, always still maintains at least about a 20% sort of approval rating and other polls are a higher approval rating. Uh, Michel Temer, the, the, the president of Brazil, has, you know, it's been many months since he was even near 10%. You know, his approval rating is about 5 5-6%. So they've had these, these sort of issues. But US, Colombia, Brazil, uh, recently together with other countries have been carrying out military training exercises, all, all sorts of things. So, so these, these sort of possibilities, and certainly when you consider how politically, you know, certainly for the U.S. sending troops on the ground to Venezuela, he's a lot, you know, really would not be seen for them as the, the optimal option. But being able to rely on Brazil and Colombia as two bordering nations with Venezuela to as potentially providing uh, any, any soldiers, any, any foot soldiers for any potential military conflict there, uh, you know, I think that is what the U.S. is, is considering and, and, you know, something that would at the moment be able to rely on, although whether they've got the, the political sort of situation that will make that feasible is, is a different question at the point now. And also trying to destroy the economy of Venezuela. Yes, and, and again, he, here is where the border with, with Colombia has been such a such a crucial area. It really has been the the, the heartbeat of where a lot of the contraband uh, has been leaving because the, the border with Brazil is, is you know is largely Amazonian region. So for for it to get to nearer populations is quite a large distance. Whereas you have some very large you know sort of cities and towns and not not that far over the other side of of the Colombian border uh, with Venezuela and, and you know it's just a the phenomenal just the, the, the amount of business that goes on or products that are clearly just leaving the country even things like you know like, like petrol you know very common uh, because of the heavy subsidization there is of petrol sales in Venezuela of you know people essentially making a living of from Colombia crossing over filling up the tank of their their car their end you know truck whatever and then crossing back over and siphoning that petrol out in order to be able to sell it at the a much higher price in Colombia, which is the price that it's sold at there. So it's been a, a big issue. You touched on this just before, but I think we need to more and more emphasise the successes of the, the Bolivarian Revolution because you don't get results like that unless the people have been helped by a government. Talk about the social policies and the, 
promotion of the popular organisations, just to give people a balance of, of what is happening and what has happened in Venezuela? I think there's, there's two important points to, to note here. Firstly, uh, one thing that is, is definitely true and is definitely an issue the government has to face is what could be sort of deemed some, uh, you know, as a kind of a, a generational vote for and against the government. And, and that is that those people who lived through the previous governments, the neoliberal governments of the 80s and 90s, very much remember what life was like before Chavez was first elected, before Chavismo first came to power. And so for that section of society, even though many of them would, would no doubt, you know, under, you know, very angry with the current situation, because, you know, it cannot be underestimated the kind of severe level of economic crisis and, and the sort of flow-on effects that that's having on people's ordinary lives that Venezuela is currently going through. For many of them, though, they, they also remember what life was like before Chavez. And, and remember that as bad as the situation is now, they feel that the situation before was, was even worse, whether that be for, for the sort of access they have to education and healthcare, or whether that be just the general involvement of ordinary poor people uh, in, in politics as opposed to the real mass repression that, that used to occur, you know, prior to the, to the Chavez and, and Maduro government. This is not the same situation, though, obviously, for the younger generations. You can imagine someone who's 20, 25 years old, their entire life has just been either Chavez or, or Maduro in power. So for them, you know, this, this seems like the status quo. This seems like the, you know, what, what life is, is sort of like. And, and for many of them, given the current economic crisis, the current social crisis, you know, looking for, for an alternative, looking, looking for a way out. Of course, this doesn't mean that all young people are against the government and all old people for it, but there, there is that aspect to that. The, the older people firstly remember what life was like for him. And secondly, is the question of, you know, without denying that there have been rollbacks in certain areas uh, over the last few years because of the big economic crisis, because of the dropping oil prices, uh, the reality is that when it comes to things like access to healthcare, uh, far exceed, even with all the problems that there is today, what people had access to prior to, to the Chavez government. If you go back and look at the figures, that less than about 33 to 35% of people were the only people who had access to any kind of healthcare, be that private or public, prior to the Chavez government uh, coming to power. Uh, so people today talk about, for instance, you know, in a lot in the news about the shortage of medicine. And again, it is a very serious problem, one that needs to be tackled with and dealt with immediately by the government. Measures need to be taken to, to deal with this because people are losing lives as a result of that. But before Chavez and, and Maduro came to power, there was no shortage of medicines because most people didn't even go to the doctor in the first place, didn't have access to go to the doctor in the first place to get the prescription for the medicine. And so they, these are the things that people remember. These are the things that when people go to vote, you know, they continue to express a strong level of support, um, notwithstanding heavy criticisms and heavy discontent that might that does exist um, amongst, you know, support base of, of the government. And we've seen that particularly expressed through social media in the last few days where people who have been supporting the government said, well, look, we supported the proposal for a national constituent assembly as a way to end the political violence that, that had engulfed the country for essentially four months early early this year. We came out and voted uh, for your candidates uh, in these elections and ensured that you would win. But well, now is the time to take measures to deal with the economic and the social situation in the country. And I think uh, the government must heed this lesson and, and avoid 
a kind of triumphalism that believes just because of these recent electoral successes, it has it has it in the bag that it will win the presidential elections next year. Uh, because I don't I don't think that's that's a certainty. Certainly, the government is in a good position uh, that you know, but without actions, measures being taken between now and the presidential elections, that sort of support that's been lent towards the government could easily be retracted by sectors uh, who feel that, you know, they've done their bit, the government's refused to really resolve the situation, and so therefore uh, most likely would be an, an, a, a high level of abstention and potentially, you know, some current supporters of the government deciding to vote, vote for the opposition. But, but those presidential elections are not, are not till next year, and not till sort of later next year. So there, there, there's a, lot, lot, a long time, a lot of things that can happen between now and then. Finally, Fred, surely there is a, a role for the older generation to, in a sense, educate the younger generation to what they might lose if they follow the opposition. I think that's true, but there also becomes a point where, where the situation in Venezuela itself becomes so deep, the crisis becomes so deep, that, that it almost becomes... It, it just the words no longer mean anything in terms of you know what's what's really worse you know before or after so i think for for the moment people recognize that the situation is not simply the result of the government there are a number of factors at play that explain what's going on in venezuela they don't exclude the government and areas that it's made uh, but they can't be simply attributed to government policy and what they need to see is that real change real changes occurred because otherwise what you have is an empty discourse. So you have a discourse, for instance, from the government that will say that the problems in the country are due to the economic war being waged by, you know, big private industry who want to protect their privilege, who want to protect their profits. And there is an, there is the truth to that. that. Again, that's not the sole explanation, but it is part of explaining what's going on in, in Venezuela. But you can't keep talking about an economic war and not take measures to try and deal with that. No one goes to war and then does nothing when faced with war. People fight back, people take measures, people try and win, win that war. That's the danger that the, the government faces, is that many people are either starting to go, look, the discourse is vacuous, it's not real, it doesn't really explain my life situation, or they say, yes, look, we agree, but you're not doing anything to end the war. So, you know, maybe it's better that we just accept and lose this war if it means that, you know, tomorrow the situation will be slightly better for us than, than it is today. That's, I think, the, a real challenge the government is facing at the moment of, of how long it can continue to maintain this, this level of support simply by relying on, well, you know, at least we're not like it was before. At least there are some still positive measures in the context of, of a real, you know, undermining of, of a lot of the important gains that were made in, in the recent years. And are there enough people in the government up to the job? Very few governments, if any, I think, would have survived the kind of situation that the Venezuelan government has done. The huge economic crisis, the large drop in oil price, the political violence, the constant destabilisation campaigns. So obviously, you know, there are people that are, that are, capable, are capable of doing it. Having said that, there are still big challenges, big obstacles that the government needs to overcome. And I really feel that, you know, between now and the presidential elections will, will be a, a, a real test of that. And, and one hopes that that the government doesn't fill itself with, with a, a sense of triumphalism uh, because of these recent election results and think that simply because of that they will win again uh, next year because they may find themselves with a bit of a surprise if they do. Thanks, Fred. No, thank you. And that's Fred Fuentes, author and journalist. He's also an activist speaking about the situation in Venezuela. That's all for me for today. I will be back at four o'clock next week. So I'll say bye for now and talk to you then.